Tonight on Arena... Blackberry, The Great Escaper, Tarek and The Exorcist Believer are the movies up for review and Natalie Haynes on her new book Divine Might, Goddesses in Greek Myth. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. It's Thursday evening. That means, of course, it is time to review this week's cinema releases. We spoke to director Oliver Park and writer William Ivory earlier this week about The Great Escaper, a film that looks at Bernard Jordan, real-life story, man who escaped from his care home to attend the 70th anniversary, 70th anniversary of the D-Day landings in France. And we spoke to Eugene O'Brien yesterday about his film Tarek, a contemporary drama set on the coastlines of Kerry in the tough world of Nave Og racing. We'll be reviewing both of them. We'll also look at Blackberry, which chronicles the story of the meteoric rise and catastrophic demise of the world's first smartphone. And finally, in The Exorcist Believer, two girls disappear into the woods and return three days later with absolutely no memory of what happened to them. Joined this evening by Justin McGregor and Gemma Cray. And let's start with Blackberry, True story, this one, of the first smartphone, which was once dubbed the Crackberry because of the seemingly addictive hold the device had on the market. Did we all know where we were heading when we started having Blackberries back in the day? Um, What world are we in here, first of all, uh, Gemma? Are we in a totally fictional world or are we in a documentary world? It is a fictionalised version of um, a book. It's based on Losing the Signal, the untold story behind the extraordinary rise and spectacular fall of Blackberry by Jackie McNish and Sean Silkoff. And it's um, it, it's a fictionalisation of mm. it. And it's a very sort of wry characterization of it as well. It, it kind of spears the tech world in a very funny way by, you know, kind of making a great... Um, distinction between, you know, the nerds and the salespeople, the the engineers and the corporate boardrooms. So it really sort of paints a picture of that uh, of, of that realm and, mm. and the manufacturing element of of, you know, these these two people that came together with a dream and then they they got on bed with like this high level um, CEO. There's two co-CEOs then they're trying to grow mm. this company to like and, and against all the odds, like a real underdog story of, of people really kind of selling a, a high concept of what happens if you cross a phone with a pager and uh, what is it what, like a word processor? Yeah, well, I, like say, I have a clip here which yeah. which has them making their pitch, and the the two guys in question are um, Mike and Doug, played by Jay Baruchel and Matt Johnson, respectively, and they're pitching their new mobile device idea to um, Jim, character played by Glenn Howerton. So, basically, there is a free wireless internet signal all across North America and nobody has figured out how to use it. There's free internet in this room right now. Mm -hmm. It's like the force. Sorry, have you seen Star Wars? No. So, okay, picture a pager, a cell phone, and an email machine all in one thing. Uh, we call it um, Pocket Link. Okay, uh, listen, we don't do anything like that here. We are a commercial manufacturing company. You want to talk to a VC guy. And you need a better name. 
So that's how the pitch went for Blackberry back in the day. Um, and and the, the three characters involved there, uh, Justin, Justin McGregor, Mike Lazaridis, played by Jay Baruchel, um, Jim Balsilli, played by Glenn Howerton, and Doug Fregan, is it Fregan? Played by Matt Johnson. Um, you, can, you can understand why the guy who was being pitched to kind of looked and said, do you know what now? Take your little device elsewhere. That yeah, there is, of course there's Wi-Fi in the room. Get out of my office. I have too much work to do. You can see why he wouldn't be interested. Oh no, they're they they were the antithesis of good business people for sure. You know, Matt's very loosey goosey. Does movie nights for the crew. You know, and Mike's character is just is, is a real engineer, and they have absolutely no concept of how to pitch at any kind of, of, of high level. And the person they're pitching, Jim, yes, is completely in that scene. He's so distracted, he doesn't make eye contact with them at all. <laughs> Says, you know, your product is a terrible name, and walks out. He later gets fired from his company and comes in and says, "I'll be co." CEO yeah. of, of Research in Motion, which was the parent company that that became BlackBerry, and uh, and he's the shark, you know, yeah. these innocent, uh, these innocent uh, neophyte geeks uh, trying to to make the the BlackBerry. Yeah, and of course it's all very well. We say, God, Pocket Link, that was a terrible name. But if it had been called Pocket Link, we we would have thought, oh, BlackBerry, that was a really silly name. It had nothing got to do with anything because BlackBerry is such a powerful term now, Gemma. And and you were saying, Gemma, as we were listening to the clip about uh, Matt Johnson, who plays the character of Doug there, one of the pitchers, that he actually directs this as well. And he's on screen practically all of the time, isn't he? He directed it. He co-wrote it. And, and again, this is a big leap up for him in his career in a sense where he's sort of an indie darling slash mm. TV director of these these kind of very silly comedies. And in a way, this is an extension of that. It is a very silly comedy, but really spearing uh, very well this 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 world of mm. these of these characters as they kind of go against the odds. And, and when you see like the, the Hail Marys, the the, the the kind of dodgy moves that they make to try and achieve and, and get BlackBerry to be the number one. Like at one stage, they're unable to have any more capacity on the networks that they're using. So they're hiring these really expensive engineers to try and hack that system, mm. hack into it while they're selling more phones. And like they're trying to balance that out so that they can afford to run the company, yeah. but keep the company in their in their in their grasp. But while you know, trying to re-engineer an entire system and, and you know, a part, like it works for a certain amount of time. And then, as we all know, it, it, all, went, it all went terribly wrong. Um, and it, it's not just the, the the tone here, that kind of mix of documentary and fiction, if you like, in, in that it's a fictionalised retelling of a true story, Justin. But the cinematography and the editing add a particular style to the film as well. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, you know, especially when they're, when they're in the when they're in their new headquarters or Blackberry headquarters, there's sort of all these long shots and shots sort of through doors as though it's a fly on the wall documentary. So it spends a lot of time, you know, giving you the impression that it's got this really documentary element. And actually, the film probably, you know, in, in its mm. use of of real stories, is actually leaning more towards being, you know, a document of what went on behind the doors of BlackBerry. Though of course, much of it is still encrypted in, on BlackBerry servers, as it, as it notes at the very end. Um, and so it really works very hard also with the editing, not to really do kind yeah. of hyper frenetic, you know, uh, uh, editing. Okay. It makes sure that it sort of goes, you know, shot to shot and very patiently. So you really feel like you're watching people think and come up with it, with these ideas that change the world. Really, Stars from you on this one, Justin. 
Um, I, it just was missing a heart. I thought it was all really interesting and there was so much that I didn't know. But when things happened, like when the company started to go the other direction, you didn't feel like, oh, no, you know, it didn't kind of yeah. catch in your throat. So I just put it, uh, you know, uh, three and a half stars. Yeah, the I was, film going, to, needed I was going to put that question to you. So three and a half from Justin, I was going to put that same question to you, Gemma. You know, do you feel anything when it starts to go terribly wrong or do you just not care? I was completely invested. I was invested all in right. the world. I was invested in their... Their their chancerness, their eagerness. They were such underdogs. They got everything across the line. So when they started to kind of make these terrible decisions and you know, like yeah. you know, like lose oh. the heart of their company, I was devastated. So I I gave a four star. You gave a four. So it was a it was a more of a more of a moving experience for you, Gemma. All right, let us move on. That that was a BlackBerry. Let's move on to film number two tonight. Tarak. Uh, uh, sorry, film number two tonight is 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 is. is what's the one that I'm looking for it's called The Great Escaper um, we spoke to William Ivory and Oliver Parks about this during the week uh, on the surface this is a, a true story again here Justin about uh, a, a veteran of D-Day who decides to head off to the 70th uh, anniversary commemorations because he, he didn't manage to get a ticket um, on the surface and, and he manages to make his way there this this looks as a feel good movie a veteran makes his way there has a great time and goes back home to his loving wife played by the two veterans played here by the the V-Day, the D-Day veteran played by Michael Caine and the other wonderful performance his wife played by Glenda Jackson yeah, no, you know, it, 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 it's ripped from the headlines. It happened, you know, it was on Sky News and BBC and what have you. And really, it could have just been a very simple kind of, you know, feel good romp. And actually, it's a really nuanced film about a lot of things. It's a really nuanced film about aging, a really nuanced film about, you know, relationships developing and growing. And, and in particular, I think in looking at this generation, so many of whom had what we would call PTSD, you know, my three great uncles included. Mm. And of course, it's undiagnosed. They just had to, you know, get on with it, you know, keep calm and carry on. And it's re- it, when it gets into that, when the veterans start to meet one another, it actually just transcends into this really amazing and powerful film. There's a scene in a, in a bar where they meet some Germans yeah. who come to the D-Day commemorations and almost no words are spoken. They introduce themselves. They say two things to each other and it is devastating like for both of them uh, and the way Michael Caine just reaches out to, to this German you know officer who's obviously on the other side at D-Day may have killed you know may have killed his friend mm. um, it, it, it's absolutely engrossing and, and absolutely heartbreaking and done so subtly and beautifully yeah, and, by and, Michael Caine and Wolf Keller yeah, who the, normally plays these Nazis in like Indiana Jones movies Absolutely that scene really stands out in the film Gemma um, and that, mm. that moment when, when Michael Caine's character makes it to uh, to the to to France for the seventieth anniversary commemorations. He also misses his John Standing is playing this character who, on the surface, again is wonderful, but links into what William Ivory told me about his own father, who had a brother who died uh, during the, the in and around the Second World War, and who never spoke about it. And you get a sense that this kind of buried story is there in all of these men. Yes, and again, we also um, meet a younger uh, veteran who's from a more recent war, just to show mm. how you know it spans generation. He's an amputee, and he's somebody who's really going through the throes of PTSD. And Michael Caine gives him some words of wisdom of of how to manage mm. that and how to deal with it. And I think, in many ways, um, a lot of how Michael Caine is able to make Michael Caine's character is able to process that pain is because of his relationship with his wife, Rini. She has always played been by Glenda Jackson. Oh, 
it's just so brilliant the two of them together the two of them together are amazing aren't they yeah she really she really lights up the screen she really embodies this strong character dealing with so much as her body is is frail I'd say it's mm. it's she she passed away this was her last role nine months after the yeah. the film and and I think it, it really is a testament to her career and her talent as a, as a really beautiful representation of her on screen but but Irene Irene her character really serves as that support and you can see that that's how Bernard mm. managed to make it through. Yeah, let's listen to a little clip that features Michael Caine and um, and Glenda Jackson and indeed uh, also here the, the, the nurse uh, who's in the care home nurse played by uh, I'll come, yes, I'll come back to you on who the nurse is played by here but she, she's coming in with the news about the about the D-Day tickets that he doesn't have them. <laughs> come in. Unless you're bailiffs. Did they put something <laughs> in your tea in that cafe this morning? Hey, Irene, how you doing? Oh, very well, thank you, Judy. Well, it's a good timing. I just made some tea. You want a cup? Oh, I'd love one, Bernie, but we got an inspection. Ooh. You can't say I didn't make you an offer. <laughs> now, what can we do you for? I rang them straight away. I'm really sorry, Bernie. We left it too late. Left what? What are you on about? The trip to the beaches. D-Day. Bernie? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. It's my fault. I should have got more organised. They do a very good show here. I'll go there instead. Eh? Thank you for trying. Yes, thank you, Judith. No props. Bye. See you later. Right. Brew, then beach. There we go. Glenda Jackson and Michael Caine as Bernie Jordan and Rini Jordan in that scene. And Jackie Clune was the uh, actress playing the, the, the nurse there. There are flashbacks in this back to when they first met, but the relationship is so good in the present day. Did we need the flashbacks, Gemma? Oh, I, I felt I felt it really took away from the action. There was, mm. there was the, the performances were so true and so real. And it was such a heightened, almost yeah. cliched version of it. At, at one point, you know, one of the one of the soldiers who's stationed with Bernard takes out the picture of his girl back home and, you know, obviously what we, we all know what happens after someone takes out a photo and talks yeah. about the girl back home. Do you know, like, and it just is, it kind of reaches for the lowest hanging fruit and explains yeah. things about their relationship that these two amazing yeah. actors capture. Yeah, I already had it. So all, powerful. All the subtext was there. Um, stars from you in this one, Gemma? Oh, I would say three, three and a half. All right. And what are you saying overall, uh, Justin? Oh, no, I'm, a, I'm a huge Glenda Jackson fan, and I, I think this is a, a real amazing look at, at mm. a great generation and a tribute to the two stars. So for me, first of all, try not to cry, but I give it four and a half. Yeah, you'd be, you'd be made of stone if you'd not moved by it. And <laughs> knowing that she died uh, subsequent to the making of the film, I think, adds to the poignancy mm. of it all. All right, let us move on then to Tarek. And this is the uh, story uh, we spoke to Eugene O'Brien about it last night. A woman returns to her home on Ireland's southwest coast after her father suffers a heart attack. She finds herself returning to the competitive world of rowing in Navogues, or native Irish boats. Uh, Justin, again, this has this has a touch of the feel-good off it, but in that the, she comes back, of course she's going to be friendly again eventually with all of her pals and get into the boat. Otherwise, there's no story. But it it, <laughs> it manages to bring it to bring that somewhere else as well. Yeah, no, there's a there, there's a really wonderful relationship with her father. 
they they've clearly not spent a lot of time. The mother died when when uh, when Aoife was sixteen. Aoife played by Kelly Goff. Traumatized. Aoife played by Kelly yeah, Goff, and the father character. played by um, Lorton Cranich. Lorton Cranich, yeah, who's played these kind of crusty fathers before. Um, and, and here he is. Yeah, he's a, he's a competitive rower as well. It runs in the family. But it's that relationship of the two of them and the things they're not able to say to each other as, you know, they're still mm. processing the trauma. You know, there's a room in the house that the mother used for sewing and it's been clearly left untouched since the last time she used it. And it's very telling, obviously, about the father's emotional state and Aoife's, Aoife's emotional state too. But it really gives the film this sort of added layer of poignancy. It's not just about winning the big race. Mm. It's about these worlds we leave behind sometimes when we move on with our lives, our our families, our friends, our, our, our smaller towns. And it really has all of that bubbling underneath. It just gives this added layer, I think, to the to what would otherwise be a sports movie. Yeah, and it, it, it moves beyond that. And the other aspect of this, this is an Irish language movie, um, which is following in, the, in such a wonderful tradition that has been established over recent years, in particular with Colleen Kuhn and Aracht, you know, two enormous films through the Cine Cahar uh, project. This is another one in the Irish language, which just, it's brilliant to see a good film being made about an ordinary story, but that happens to be in Irish. And Frankie and and Frankie and Frankie and Rose, isn't it? The, yes, uh, Frankie like, Frankie and Rose, yeah, yeah. And there, like, it just it just shows when investment is put in, like when you take the time. Like mm. people will go see these films. Like people, they resonate with, um, they resonate with people the world over. I think this is something that's so beautiful. It speaks to like a modern day society in the sense where Eva has been living this very, very fast paced life in Dublin and she's sort of forced to face all the things she's left behind when she mm. returns to this slower paced rural world. And in a way, I would say at one point she even takes up that racing um, to distract herself because yeah. she's, you know, she's been busy. She's been escaping her thoughts and her feelings. Yeah, she's, she's trying to avoid. To uh, I mean, you, you get this sense that grief hasn't been processed, you know, particularly between father and daughter and possibly father and daughter each separately hasn't processed the grief around the death of mother and wife, respectively. Let's. Now I played this clip last night, but I just love what's done with the Irish language here in terms of they've just been out, uh, whatever, uh, a big training session on the sea and they're all exhausted. And then it's, you know, can we actually, it's it's the four musketeers here, but ask we again. Gallum Gadordan will a gong deed lash and gurn of Vorkant. Anish, Shivsha. Shalin the Mano. Manana Mara! Hakamasu! Mano Namara. Lakila, Dokila. Lakila, Dokila. Lakila, Dokila. Lakila, together and you know for each other and with each other it's just it's 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 beautiful use of the of the language there and the language is no impediment to understanding this film at all no i think the characters are so well realized i would say as someone who's a massive Eugene O'Brien fan, it's it's a lot lighter mm. than a lot of his subject matter. Like you, you hear the joy in the women's voices. We do talk about, you know, processing the trauma and that's the meat of the conflict behind yeah. the story. But it like really it is about about women healing, about women rowing together and the physicality of the actors. And in they that actually learned how to row and they evoke on the sea, you know, which is quite extraordinary. I should mention um Rachel Feeney, Kate Finnegan, um uh 
Katney Conini and Kelly Goff were the four women that we had heard in that clip, and indeed the four women that doing that do the rowing. And the south west coast of Ireland looks stunning mm. in this, Justin. Oh no, it's amazing. I mean, that, okay, now they very cheekily never have any rain in the film, but we'll put that aside. I mean, it's a good summer, obviously, when they shot it. <laughs> this is Kerry at its most magnificent. I mean, the Blasket Islands are right there, often in the background, you know, as they're rowing between the mainland mm. and the islands. And it just looks stunning. And, you know, the, the sun and the light and, and the clouds over, deep over the Atlantic. I mean, it is just beautiful, right. especially when it turns back around on the seaside you know, village. It's absolutely idyllic. It's, okay. it's just stunning and beautifully realised. Starts from you, Gemma? I th- a good solid three and a half. It's so, a sports movie. It does all the beats, but there is a real weight behind it. That and from you, Justin? Yeah, I would like to know a little bit more about the other three women in the boat because they were really interesting mm. characters. Uh, I gave it uh, 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 four stars. It's another jewel in the Irish Irish All filmmaking right. crown. All right, that's uh, Tarek. And let's move on. Then, final film. You saw this one, Gemma. Um, <laughs> The Exorcist, uh, the Exorcist, what is the, the uh, add on to the believer? What is happening to the Exorcist franchise and why don't they just leave it alone is my first question. But what is happening to it? We could ask John Borman maybe and see if he has an answer for his um, his, his one, Exorcist 2, The Heretic, which also went down like a lead balloon. Now, I'm not sure how necessarily this will be received, but it's definitely not a weighty, deep film by any long mm. shot. Um, What's you know, the basic setup? The basic setup is there are these um, two girls uh, where we're, we're introduced to one young um, one young performer. She's uh, Olivia Markham. She's a really bright young talent who's, you know, has a really close uh, relationship with her father, Victor Fielding, played by Leslie Odom Jr., who we'd know as Aaron Burr in Hamilton. Um, you, you know, like they're they're really close, like they're a really mm. close family, which I think as a 13 year old girl and a controlling father, I don't think I don't think that's particularly truthful, even from the get go. <laughs> They're not normally as sweet and playful as, as we see them on screen. But she disappears into the woods. Now, she tells him she's going to um, go do some homework. But really, she's trying to talk to her late mother who died in a prologue of the film. Um, and where does Ellen Burstyn fit into this story? Uh, the character of Chris. Yeah, so she is um, the mother from the original, um, the original exorcist. So she comes back when these girls return. Um, you know, strange occurrences start happening. They don't know where they've been. They have marks all over their body, and then obviously the spirit, that evil exorcist spirit, takes over. Um, from the original one, it's it's set to be the same spirit, but it has a dual um, kind of haunting of them both. So she comes back in, sort of as a guru. She's written a mm. book in the meantime since the original one, which has fractured her relationship with her daughter in that who managed to survive, and she's brought in as sort of um, an advice right. giver. Do, does it work or should do we need to just let sleeping dogs lie and remember the, fi- the fine thing that was the original Exorcist? I think it is a completely different genre to the original film in that it's very silly. I mm. mean, if you take it as a really silly, literal... I mean, it's written by Danny McBride from the Pineapple Express as one of the writers. Right. I mean, if you, if you take it in the context of it's you know about it's about all different flavors of Christians and spirituality coming together to fight a demon um and and once you get that i mean it's fun there's there's jump scares and gore and violence and yeah. people getting their eyes stabbed and but not really scary like the original exorcist no no <laughs> like it's not about existential dread or right. or okay. anything like that Stars. it's bad i would say two 
too and yeah. you're just about giving it that yes. if, if, if your face is anything to go by that's Gemma Cray on Exorcist Believer uh, and Gemma and Justin McGregor speaking to us previously about Eugene O'Brien's Tarek The Great Escaper and Blackberry We've been hearing a lot recently from TikTok in particular about how bothered men are about the Roman Empire seemingly thinking about it once a day. I would be pretty certain that my next guest is a woman who thinks about the Greek myths at least once an hour. She's Natalie Haynes, author of A Thousand Ships, her retelling of the Trojan War, Pandora's Jar, where she explored the lives of the women in Greek myth. With her latest book, Divine Might, Goddesses in Greek Myth, she takes a step out of humanity and into the world of the gods and goddesses who were so powerful in mythology. Divine Might looks at the goddesses in particular, follows their stories, how were they worshipped in the ancient world, stories that were told about them, temples that were built to them, and the book asks why these goddesses had such a central role in ancient life. Delighted to be joined by Natalie Haynes this evening. Now, don't make out a, li- a liar out of me in your first answer, please, Natalie. I'd I wouldn't say, dream of it. <laughs> I'd say you do think about um, Greek mythology at least once an hour, if not more it's often. quite a lot more than once an hour. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I was surprised when the whole men think about the Roman Empire once a day thing came up because I, I literally was sitting there going... I didn't realise anyone didn't think about the Roman Empire once a day. It literally hadn't occurred to me that that was an option. Like, what are you all thinking about instead? What am I missing while you're all doing something else? But yeah, I think about Greek myth pretty well all the time. I'm yeah, so you, but that's, so you do give the Roman Empire a little bit of thought, but only in I between do. your obsession with the with, with Exactly. Greek, with it's like Greek my myth. interval, essentially. It's when I have popcorn. What, <laughs> what, about, what about the goddesses then? How central are they to the world of Greek mythology? They're completely central. I mean, you know, just at the most obvious visual way, um, the Parthenon, which is the temple on the Acropolis in Athens, which has made it one of the most identifiable skylines in the world for two and a half millennia, is a is a temple to Athene, to Athena, if you prefer. Um, and it wasn't uh, obviously once as it is now when um, the second century geographer Pausanias goes to Athens to write about it amongst the rest of Greece that he mm-hmm. writes about in his um tour around the place the statue of Athene which was there then stood probably somewhere between 11 and 12 meters high you can see a a Mm. copy of it that's about a meter high in the National Archaeological Museum in Athens now but 12 meters is really something and that wasn't even the biggest statue of Athene on the Acropolis that was the Athene Promachos so that's her in the front line of battle is what Promachos means. Yeah, so she's... And she's got her helmet and her spear on. According to Pausanias, you could see the tip of the spear, the top of the plume of the helmet from Sunion. Sunion is almost 40 miles from Athens. Yeah, so they, they were pretty powerful uh, entities in whether, whatever way we want to think of them. Hugely uh, so. And, and very important to the life of, of the Greek, of Greek civilization. But you argue in the book that the goddesses get pretty bad press. Now, you could hardly say that the gods were kind of meek, mild-mannered men wishing to, <laughs> wishing to rule with great wisdom and kindness. No. <laughs> that is fair. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say that. But I think what's happened, which I find really interesting, is that we've sort of lost some of the stories of these goddesses um, as as classical reception, which is what um, the last couple of hundred years of people talking and thinking and writing about classics is known as, we've we've lost some of the stories that were really central in 
in the time of ancient Greece and indeed in ancient Rome. So Hestia was a goddess who we're told in the Homeric hymn to Hestia. So this is one of the earliest poems that survives to us from probably the 7th century BCE. Uh, so 2,700 years ago. Um, we're told that she has uh, a seat in the home of every immortal god, i.e. all the temples um, to every god contain uh, part of them is, you know, mm. dedicated, is sacred to Hera, uh, to Hestia rather, and also every home of mortal men. And so she is the first and last. When the Greeks wanted to say, to start from the beginning, they said, af Hestias archestai, to begin with Hestia. Um, right. Because she is the oldest sibling of Zeus and Hera, Demeter, Poseidon and Hades. Um, and so she gets the first and last portion of every sacrifice made in this extremely ritualistic um, form of polytheistic religion. And yet somehow we forgot about her. That wasn't yeah. the Romans. That was definitely us. The Romans yeah. called her Vesta. Um, and there are shrines to her all over Pompeii in bakeries because she's the goddess of the hearth and therefore by extension of places with ovens in like bakeries. So not only is she the central goddess of the home, of the household, of the people who make your house into a home, of that warm, lovely feeling you get when you gather around a mm. hearth with your loved ones. She is also the goddess of carbs. I don't know how we, how is she not central <laughs> yeah. to our lives? Yes. She's central to my life now. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> and and given that given the role that you're saying she has there, and 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 quite and, and so important to humanity as well as to the the mythology of the whole thing, were the goddesses in particular? Were they was was there some way in which they were supposed to be role models for Greek women? To this is the way you should behave. This is the way you should be. I mean, happily, not too much, um, because otherwise ancient Greece would have been full of women, um, you know, uh, randomly culling young girls in the case of Artemis, yeah. <laughs> randomly um, killing women and young men alike in the case of Aphrodite, um, taking part in wars in the case of Athene. I think if um, mortal women had behaved like goddesses in any time, but particularly in ancient Greece, where women had quite... Um, cloistered lives, um, men would probably have died of shock. I find it really interesting that of our big Olympian goddesses, of whom there are six, three of them are unmarried, have no kind of sexual relationship at all. That's Hestia, Athene and Artemis. And I can never quite work out whether, I mean, that's completely unlike the life of of yeah. human women at the time Absolutely. who would have had no capacity to refuse marriage, no alternative life apart from perhaps being a priestess, which obviously wasn't very many people. Um, that that could apply to. So I'm never sure whether the idea is to make us realise how different goddesses are from us because, you know, they half of them don't even marry or whether the idea is to acknowledge the extremely poor quality of husband material on Mount Olympus, <laughs> which would be fair either way. Well, interestingly enough, in terms of Artemis, you're probably, I mean, you may even use the word predator in and around her at a certain point, yeah, which is not a, a word... hunter. Yeah, we, yeah, obviously she was a hunter, but it's not a word that we would necessarily... Um, attached to the female of the species, if that is what a goddess is. And yet she's almost always shown with bow and arrows. You know, mm. she's a hunter in the sort of old-fashioned sense of the word. She goes out into the mountains, the woods, the trackless places, and she picks off animals. And she is described often as Potnia Theron, queen of wild creatures. And yet also she will take their lives. And so she is quite a strange predator you know, I, as a vegetarian who's only ever lived in a city, I find it really hard to imagine that you could both like animals and kill them. But I do see that's quite a modern position to hold. But yeah, she is absolutely lethal. The story of the Niobids, 
where a woman named Niobe boasts that because she's got 14 children, seven sons and seven daughters, um, she is the equal to or even mm. superior to Leto, who's the mother of Artemis and Apollo, because she's only got two offspring. And, and Artemis and Apollo then slaughter her children all in a single day. I mean, it's absolutely horrifying. Mm. You can see statue after statue, vase painting after vase painting, which shows both of them completely impassive as they take the lives of these yeah. innocent children because their mother has been insulted. But of course, we do see female archers in modern culture too, both in the recent Marvel superheroes TV show, uh, Hawkeye, where Kate Bishop takes over the role of being the sharpshooter mm. that had previously been held by Clint Burton. And, and of course, in, in The Hunger Games, um, where Katniss Everdeen is armed with bow and arrows. So anyone who's seen that cultural juggernaut, either read the books or seen the Jennifer Lawrence films, will know that uh, a young woman with a bow and arrows shouldn't be underestimated. Certainly not. What about um, um, Aphrodite? Why does she get such a bad rap, a rap? Indeed, you know, like obviously anything that might bring a bit of sensuality and joy into our lives must be a good thing. Absolutely a good thing. But here's the thing. The Greeks didn't have a very sophisticated language of psychology. In fact, nobody had a very sophisticated language of psychology for, you know, millennia after Aphrodite becomes a, a goddess that people worship. So as often happens with ancient gods and goddesses, their cruelty or their arbitrary, the arbitrary way they dole out favours, um, I think probably reflects the way that people experienced the world without the language of saying, I knew that I should, you know, stay faithful to my partner, but unfortunately this really hot boy walked past and so I behaved with questionable judgment. <laughs> um, and so for the Greeks, desire is something imposed on you from outside. I think if I saw someone across a crowded room and fell for them, we would assume that was on me. If they were really gorgeous and I was, you know, the kind of slightly passive aggressive songwriter that's done quite well over the last few decades, we might say it was them. You know, they were so beautiful I couldn't help myself. But I don't think we would assume either of us, that I'd been struck by an external force, like an arrow from Eros's bow or Aphrodite blasting me with a jolt mm. of desire. For the Greeks, that's absolutely what happens in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. She walks uh, across Mount Ida and the animals all start kind of gamboling and fawning because they're so excited. And she rewards them with a jolt of desire. They withdraw sunduo, mm. the poem says, two by two. So like Noah's Ark, but a bit racier, I think. What, what about Zeus and Hera? That was a, a, a pretty colourful sex life? Yeah, I mean, we always kind of miss this bit out because we focus on Hera being a, a vicious um, persecutor of women and children and sometimes also men. And she is that. Um, but we don't tend to think of her as the beautiful young goddess she is when Zeus originally falls for her. Um, we're told by, I think it's in Callimachus, that he hungers for her for 300 years. That is quite the honeymoon, I think we can <laughs> safely say. But of course, then they are stuck in this terrible, coercive relationship. He is violent yeah. towards her. He threatens her with violence. And it's not an empty threat. He chains her at one point um, to Mount Olympus, which, you know, it can't kill her. She's a goddess, but it can certainly injure her. And obviously it degrades her. This is the kind of punishment that someone would mete out to a criminal, you know, not to the queen of the gods herself. And so he is deeply coercive and there's no escape because they're yeah. both going to live forever. So no wonder she's bad tempered. Yeah, you might, you might, you might excuse a little bit of bad temper in the midst of I all might. of that. One of the things you do in the book, and you've done this in other writing, I think, as well, Natalie, you make lots of references uh, to popular culture and divine might. Um, Cardi B, Lizzo um, are, are in there, I think. It, 
do, why do you bring those contemporary references in uh, f- for a, a modern readership? Is there not enough <laughs> blood, th- gore and sex in the, in the mythology itself without bringing in contemporary references? There the certainly idea? is absolutely plenty of gore and uh, and generally terrible behaviour in our ancient sources. But I think one of the things that interests me is how these stories change through time. And so you can see different versions of, you know, Aphrodite, who becomes, a, you know, in modern iterations, you know, around Valentine's Day, you'll see lots of really sappy looking Aphrodites. To the Greeks, she was terrifying, you know. And mm. it's like, well, why, where did that power go? Where did that respect go for for a goddess who's really mighty? And I, I'm really, you know, the story of Artemis, for example, um, uh, transforming Acteon, a young man who accidentally or deliberately, depending on the version, um, catches sight of her while she's naked. Um, she turns him into a stag and he's eaten by his own dogs. And that is a story which has inspired artists in the ancient world, um, it went on to inspire Titian and lots of other painters during the Renaissance. And it's like, okay, well, what what happens to these stories? Why did these ones get mm. get picked? Why do they survive? Why is it the case that when you want to show that you're, you know, supremely confident in your own skin, as in the video for the Lizzo and Cardi B song Rumours, why is it that you style yourself as a Greek no. goddess? No, what no, is it about go. that power that you want to emulate? So I find re- it really interesting how these things shift through centuries. Great to have spoken with you as always. That's Natalie Haynes and Natalie's book Divine Might, Goddesses in Greek Myth is published by Picador. I Have a Tribe is the musical moniker of Patrick O'Leary. Patrick was last with us back in 2016 on the release of his acclaimed debut album Beneath a Yellow Moon. Earlier this year, Patrick released a single entitled Teddy's Song, a piece of music that signalled a forthcoming album of huge musical ambition. That album will be released tomorrow and it's entitled Changing of the Guard. Patrick is with me in studio this evening and I want to listen to Teddy's Song, but I think it's lovely to know a little bit about... The, the couple of teddies who possibly are inspirations behind this song, Patrick. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, there was, there's a few teddies involved. So initially it was uh, an uncle of mine, uh, Teddy, Teddy Joe Coyne. We were great friends and um, Teddy died maybe a year or two before I moved west. And mm. uh, the first while I was kind of thinking, ah, oh, geez, why didn't I, why didn't we move when he was, you know, still around and, then I kind of realised, well, sure, he's still around a lot, you know. And um, How did you realise he was still around a lot? Just in, once I kind of got beyond the feeling of, I wish we were here earlier, mm. I kind of maybe was a bit more open to everyone you meet would say, are you a nephew of Teddy Joe? And, you know, they'd say the same things about him. And the other Teddy then, uh, Teddy was a sheep farmer, so he had these beautifully obedient sheepdogs. And sheepdog came in our gate one day, and um, I found the owner, and he said, "I, I don't want him. He's chaos. Do you want him?" And I said to him, "Well, what's his name?" And he said, "Teddy." So I said, "Okay, leave leave him in the car." So and it was great. It was good crack that I wasn't sent a beautifully behaved dog. You know, it was a bit of work on him, but he's he's lovely. Yeah. Did he find you? Do you think? It, it's a yeah. We've become uh, good friends. So I. I I don't know. It was it was it was lovely, but at the same time, it didn't come too much of a shock, you know. And I asked the man his name. He said Teddy. I said, "Great, yeah, you know, I'll, easy." I'll, I'll yeah. run with that. Yeah. And so was born this song. Mm-hmm. 
Sweet mind, I don't think is worth all of this conversation. You belong in this ancient. I don't so think the opening section there of Teddy's song from I Have a Try, Patrick O'Leary and his new album, which is called Changing of the Guard. I wanted to hear that wonderful trumpet solo, muted trumpet solo, which gives it a kind of a smoky, bluesy, kind of sexy feel, it has to be said, Patrick. <laughs> First time ever, I'd say that's been the word describing my, my music. Well, but that it's there in that trumpet, <laughs> would you not agree? Yeah, that's Connor. It was um, Connor. Connor Brown Villagers, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just kind of came about in a lovely way. I think I sent him the song just for just for a listen and he, he came back and said, oh, I, I wouldn't mind trying this. And I suppose when someone like Connor says, I wouldn't mind playing on that. He kind of let them, he let them at it. So, yeah. yeah, it's lovely and generous. Of him. Wasn't there, there's yeah. another song on the, on the album which kind of happened. Well, I know obviously Connor, Connor's contribution to that song came in a little bit later on yeah. um, from, from the making and the writing of the song. Yeah. But the song Fly Like a Bird, did this just kind of happen in studio? Yeah. What happened there? Lovely, um, unintentional recording. I didn't know it was being recorded, I mm. suppose, is the easiest way of putting it. I was um, in a like a, a big kind of studio complex and a fella stuck his head out the door and said, I, I have to record a piano. Will you play it and see how I the mic set up? Right. And so I sat down and I, I just played away a bit and he said would you sing a song I just need to check the, the levels so I just sang that it was in my head So um, it, like it was written but you were Yeah had it written yeah. but and, I, and maybe it's a good thing because had he said oh we're going to record that now yeah, maybe yeah. then you, you kind of you switch and you, you put on you your performance mode <laughs> Yeah so it was it was nicer that I didn't know mm. um, and then it kind of yeah, he, he played it out through the speakers and the next fellow walking by the door said, geez, I, I wouldn't mind playing on, you know, I wouldn't mind playing on that. And, and he came in and played on it. So it was just a And who, was were, who were these two fellas? Yeah, it was only afterwards I copped it. Like I, I had been listening to, you know, their work a bit. Trevor, Trevor came in and Trevor would play a lot with Bonnie Vare and these kind of people. So it... it and I probably a good thing in a way as well. I had no idea. Well, who um, were they? Tell us. <laughs> Trevor Hagen and David Shalman are the, the two men. And yeah, it was lovely just the way it came about. Um, and not a million miles from, I suppose, the feeling with, with Connor too. It's nice to maybe meet a musician you've listened to a long time. Mm. And, and then it's as simple as, well, will we play together? You yeah, know, and and I think it was Cormac Begley yes. who is is kind of across the album in other ways as well. He that he there was you, you had you come across him in in various sections. He, is he involved in one of the songs? Or? With Cormac, maybe it's came and Gilmore would have been. Uh, mm. Yeah, there's a there's a, a couple of others. Um, yeah, just I suppose you'd be drawn to certain musicians because yeah. of the way they they play. Um, yeah. I, I, the 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 songs that we've been speaking about, there's a kind of a very laid back feel to mm. lots of them. There's a decidedly different feel to the song that I want to play now, "Sweet Day."
Patrick O'Leary who's with me in studio this evening on one of the tracks on this album Changing of the Guard I was asking you Patrick as we were listening there about the clapping in the midst of it it gives, adds a wonderful kind of off-kilter feel to kind of syncopated feel to the whole song Yeah um, I think there's a, maybe there's a bit of freedom in it like it's not done to a click or a track yeah, or it's yeah. not it goes in and out of time a little bit and um, funny you mentioned Cormac Begley a minute ago because the the way he would play, I'd get a lot from. Yeah. Um, and even the last day you had him on, I was driving down to play a game of basketball in the lo- in the community centre, and and I could hear him sweating through yes. the radio, yeah. you and, know. And, and, and the way he he almost uses the, the the buttons on the instrument as a as a percussion. Yeah. Sometimes. Yeah. A percussion piece. And sometimes. the and the lift you get at, like, geez, I arrived into the court, of, like I was playing an All Ireland <laughs> final, you know, just the lift you'd get off that kind of. Abandoned, I suppose, with the with the thing. So, yeah, it was good fun recording that one, and that I suppose that was an important element to keep, like to not mm. same as the fly like a bird thing, and just just because you're recording a thing now, you know, don't be getting too serious. Just play. <laughs> you know, uh, well, that's something that you said. I think about the making of this album as well, which is you know, going in straight lines is never a good idea. You have to be. Is that about being open to the possibilities of veering off in a new direction and not thinking too much about where it's bringing you? Yeah, I think so. And I think I only learned that from trying to go in straight lines. Um, even, uh, maybe it's a funny thing, but even driving up today for Mayo for for this, you know, okay, we're going to have a chat and maybe I'll say this and maybe mm. I'll talk about that. And, and I kind of caught myself at it, you know, because the moment I'll try and plan a thing to say or a sentence, it won't come out at all. So, yeah. Um, I think it maybe took me a while to learn not to put any expectation on an experience because you you might kill it that way, you know. Um, and that's, yeah, a lot of it was like that. And I, I suppose looking back at the recordings of mm. it now, I can see it more uh, where because when we were doing it, it wasn't. I want to, I want to get a little a little bit of Vitruvian man in okay, before we lovely. before we finish it up. Just tell us. Yeah. I mean, obviously, we're thinking of the the Leonardo da Vinci image of the man in the circle yeah. in the square. Yeah. How did that uh, influence what you did here? I saw it in Chester Beatty. The drawings were in there, and yeah, not a same thing. Imperfection and imbalance, and mm. yeah, and yeah. Let let it be what it is. Don't force it. Yeah. Let's have a listen. To dance because you filled me with wine. Each time we meet, we seem to have a nice time. I try to move like a Vitruvian man, except they're perfect and they move like nobody. I took a walk today and I spoke with a man. And there we go. That is Vitruvian Man from Patrick O'Leary, also known as I Have a Tribe. New album out tomorrow. That album is called Changing of the Guard. And I Have a Tribe will play the Westival Festival, given the fact that Patrick is now down in the West. That's in Westport on October the 29th. They'll be in Whelan's in Dublin on November the 10th and then the London Irish Centre on November the 16th. And you can find out full details on the website ihaveatribe.ie. But that is our lot for this evening. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields researched all 
Holly Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Ruth Kennington was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Olin McGowan. I will be back with you once again tomorrow night here on RTE Radio 1. Seven o'clock, as usual, with Arena. Um, album reviews will be what we will have for you tomorrow night, among other things. But I leave you now with John Creedon, who will be with you after the news.